is waiting on fries. That you don't get it. You don't. What do you mean you don't get waiting on fries? Hopefully the customer never hears waiting on fries. But all this time on the entree and it's perfectly executed, and then you're it's like, ready Fuck, to go. I forgot to fire the fries. I just always use that when I forgot to put somebody's order in, and I was like, hey, I'm just waiting on the fries. It's gonna be two more minutes. Realistically, I come back 10 minutes with the food. Exactly. <laughs> they just know that their food's not there in the service, so they're still waiting on fries. I guess we're just waiting on fries. <laughs> Cocktails on tap. Before we get into that, let's remind everybody, NewYorkPrimeBeef.com, Rise 15 for the promo code, 15% off. Ooh. What did I just say? Rise 15, 15% off. NewYorkPrimeBeef.com. Thank you, Nims. Anytime, buddy. Got everybody on their fresh meats, delivered straight to the house, in a little cooler, filled with dry ice, keeping it nice. Nice and frozen. Wagyu, dry-aged stuff. What other bougie meats do people eat? They got a sale on crab cakes right now, I believe. Dope. Lock them in. Lock them in. That's, wait, where, where? NewYorkPrimeBeef.com. What's the code? Fries 15, 15% off. Boom. Now let's talk about cocktails on tap. Cocktails on tap. Man, what exactly does that bring? I've what have experienced that. What yet. do they bring? So, about these cool little kegs, actually inspired by the pub kegs that you guys send over from Diner Brew. You said you didn't like them. The Slim Jim. I don't like them. The Slim Jims. <laughs> <No>, the <laughs> they're plastic uni little, kegs. Yeah, they're like pub kegs, right? Gotcha. Like, they're like plastic kegs. I think you can reuse them. I'm not sure if you can or not, but whatever. I can't figure out how to open them, but it got into my mind that they. They look like uh, I could put whatever I want in there and pour it through the draft system. So I started doing some research on my own. Can I make my own drinks? Can I make my own mold wine? Maybe Such a some, madman. Maybe some mead. I don't know. The, the lemonade, the possibilities are endless. But what I came up with was doing some cocktails. I'm going to take our, our two house cocktails, which is a Georgia peach and a smoke show. We sell... A ton of them. Okay. The Georgia pizza is absolutely delicious. Thank What's that one? Thank you very I much. I really What's enjoy that. Base uh, spirit? It's, a, it's basically a spiked peach tea lemonade. Gotcha. So we use New Amsterdam vodka, peach schnapps, house-made lemonade, a little sweet tea. Okay. Put it together. It. Um, tastes like a peach snapple. And the smoke show has some mezcal in there, hence the smoke show. It's a little smoky, something yeah. like margarita It's got a little, little silver tequila, a little mezcal tequila, a little grapefruit. The works. Lime, agave, you know, the rest of the... Anyway, the those those are our house cocktails, the ones we don't change on the menu. So the because rest, you sell so many of them, we probably. We sell a ton of them, and we believe we should have a signature drink that we don't change, right? Uh, to accompany your seasonal cocktail list or rotating cocktail list or whatever. But some standard that people come in and be like... I want that. That drink's going to be there every time. We sell a ton of it. They're about 20-second um, build-outs, 20 to 30... Second build-outs behind the bar. So the idea is if we're selling so many of them, if we put them on tap and we can just pour them on the tap, can I speed up the service that much quicker? Can I get that many more drinks out, uh, therefore making more money or more sales revenue? But does it violate the consistency or the quality of the product going out? Before you go too far ahead, for someone who's less initiated on the bar, 20 to 30 seconds per build-out doesn't sound like it's that slow, right? Is that on the quick side or the slow side or what? That. It's on a it's on a quicker side, but you're yeah, just trying sure. to look to save as much time as possible. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not everybody can do a twenty to thirty second build out on that. It might go a little longer, but yeah. No, but the goal not, is they're yeah. not complicated drinks by any. By I'll any do both, both those in like thirteen seconds. Both of them at the same time. Thirteen. Bartender extraordinaire. I'm assuming the streets. 
they'll forget two uh, two ingredients <laughs> and nice. But, but sure, okay. Like what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's essentially the same as flipping a table. You want to get everything down, save your time, so you can get a second seating in, right? So like now you're able to get a second or a potential third drink to the table. Absolutely. In the amount of time that they're sitting there, because you just cut down time to what? The amount of time that it takes to pour out from the tap line. Right, like five seconds takes to fill a glass. Totally. Of 30 seconds, right? And in that 10 seconds of time, now the server might be showing up to get the ticket even faster because they know it's going to be ready instead of being like, eh, she's going to take 45 seconds. Well, the key is to get the drink to the customer as soon as possible so that the clock starts ticking as soon as possible. Because we all know there's a certain amount of time that a table is going to stay in the restaurant built in, and you don't really have a choice on that. I mean, you do a little bit, but the... There's generally a certain amount of time the table is going to be there. The faster you get that first cocktail to the drink and the second one and the third one, then the more you can kind of sneak in on that. On Do you that know level. the average table time in this restaurant? Uh, it's about 70 minutes. Okay. A little over an hour? A little over an hour. Yeah. Cool. So in doing that too, like, there's so many questions. I haven't put anything on tap or in tap or in the keg tap, cocktail yeah. tap, and you know what I'm saying, right? Yes. So why don't you run us through the process? Because I'm quite curious as well. So it's actually a lot easier than it sounds. The hardest part is buying the equipment and then um, installing the equipment um, because the the tap or sankey is different from your average sankey. So it's not an American sankey or an M sankey or anything like that. It actually has two tubes. One is uh, sorry to break it down even more. Sankey is the piece of hardware that goes on the end of a draft line that ta- essentially taps the keg. Which right? are apparently pretty expensive pieces. I don't know. You should ask your distributor. For yeah, yeah. No, they're <laughs> kind of expensive. Okay. You shouldn't pay for them. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> you should ask your distributor to give you a Sankey when you buy beer. Anyway, um, it's a different piece. It's actually two separate pieces. One is for gas and one is for product, and they tap on the sides of it. And then the, um, the top of the keg has a big kind of open hole instead of the small... Um, ball bearing oh, yeah, yeah. thing that a regular keg has. So you have a big hole there that has a big l- lever on it that you can pop open so you can basically put whatever contents you want into the keg. Now, um, before COVID, I feel like this would have been a little bit more of a stretch because you don't naturally batch out your cocktails on a regular basis. But once mm. we started batching out cocktails for the to-go cocktails and bottling pints and quarts and all that stuff, um, the recipe for making a good amount of of said cocktail is already there. So it's already part of our daily process of batching out this cocktail. So instead of having to make them one by one, we're making 40, 50 at a, bon- at a, at a clip. And that's what fits in this little keg. Yeah, the keg will actually fit twice as much as what we batch out on a normal, on a normal, um, a normal batch out. So we haven't filled the keg to the top. We've just been using our normal, our normal batch and putting it into the keg. But it's essentially the same process. You pour it in the keg, you lock it up, you put the gas on, and now you pour it uh, from the tap instead of, you know, portioning out all the bottles and stuff from the, from the camera when you batch it out. When things go into a keg, like the pressurized, so how are you dealing with the gas and, like, worrying about how that affects the drink? Because, I mean, beer is carbonated. That typically comes out of a keg. Your cocktails, yeah. you don't want them carbonated, right? No. So that was my initial concern. Yeah. Um, and when we talked to the draft tech about it, that was, you know, I said, is this going to make it a bubbly cocktail? It's not supposed to be. Um, whatever. They told me basically what you have to do is turn down the turn down the pressure on the regulator, 
So instead of pouring at an 18 and a 22, 22 PSI that you would normally pour for a beer, you just got to turn it down a little bit. We run it now for the cocktails about 10, 10 to 15 PSI. Um, but it doesn't really carbonate the beverage because what the gas is used to do is push that beverage out. out right. right. It's not necessarily carbonating. It would carbonate over a period of time of just being it sit there and eventually would um, kind of mesh into the into the into the beverage, but it won't do it like right like yeah. right away. Um, again, it's just used to kind of push the liquid into the tube and into the draft system. So right now, you have uh, separate gas tanks just for these two cocktails. No, it runs on the same. Yeah, uh, so you're able same. to turn the gas down for those two cocktails. It doesn't affect the beer. Yeah, each Correct. one of our lines on a separate regulator, so you could change. Yeah, you yeah know, that's right. I knew that. Yeah, depending on what. Uh, so there's what some you need to stipulations to think about when you're doing something like this, because not every drink is going to work appropriately on or in this keg that you're filling yourself. And along with the pros of doing this, there's cons of doing this too. Just, and I think. Maybe people that aren't really behind the bar that may have a restaurant and are thinking about doing something like this, they might not know what to look out for. And I think you've got them on some of those things. Um, the pros. We want the the pros cons. cons. The things Which to look one? out for. What do you, you know, want let's, first? Let's go with the pros. <laughs> I mean, we said some of that already. Pros. Speed, right? Number one, speed. You get out a cocktail, was that six times faster than a bartender can make it? Right. Right. Uh, obviously, that's good for a ton of reasons, especially during a busy time. You essentially can cut back on how much you need a service bartender because one bartender can now catch up to a drink ticket a lot faster than before when you yep. had to add. If there's four Georgia peaches on one ticket, that's two minutes to build, and now we're talking about 20 seconds, right? Now, so, also important with the speed of that, that also has a direct effect too, to how many people you have to employ because now your bartender during COVID time can still be taking tables unaffected because they don't have to produce the cocktails. Right. Now, you, yes and no because it's only two of the Some cocktails. cocktails. So the, the most popular cocktails, right? So it cuts down on that. But, I mean, you're still going to have to make it old-fashioned. You're still going to have to make – those are still going to – what's the building on old-fashioned? How fast can you do that, Speedy? 13 I mean, seconds. it depends what we prep, <laughs> like – you want me to be muddling shit, or yeah. you want me to get yelled at in the city and be like, why aren't you just putting the simple and the bourbon and calling it a day? Let's go. Yeah, no, I want you to make bitters. it the real way. Yeah, so I, I'm saying that if you want to do that, you could have this done seconds. quickly. Yeah. Pro yeah, with dilution, sure. <laughs> yeah, with dilution, yeah, sure. But uh, anyway. But that's also an important piece of this factor, too, is that you have to account for the dilution when you're building these drinks out because it needs to add water well, not in. Anymore. Wait, what do you mean not anymore? Not on the tap. Because why? It's done. Well, with the tap, when you're when you you're fill building, with ice, it, you pour it over. Boom, done. Oh, because you're saying that ice will melt for your dilution. Because when you're building a drink, you're stirring it, right? Correct. So you're doing an old fashioned, you're doing Manhattan, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. You're stirring it to get thirty percent dilution in the drink because that's where the drink is appropriately served. Right. To well, that comes out down in your batch, little, out, if you will. In your batch, so you got to batch out okay, appropriately yeah. to make up for you know what you would have gotten ice or whatever. So yep. you, you batch it out, but now it's poured right over the ice, and it is what it is, and that's it. So then my question, too, is do you have – like if we're looking for 30% dilution-ish in most drinks, then the question is do you batch that just under 30, knowing that it's about to hit other ice, and then that ice is going to melt while it's sitting on the table? Correct. You know, I, I mean, there's consistency. You have consistency when you're batching these and putting them on tap. But then there's other issues, though, because if you want it to be consistent, 
I mean, not all not all drinks call for thirty percent dilution. Either. No, but it's like a, it's a good it's a good. Uh, yeah. What's this thing I'm doing with my hand? Shaking. Like a good air <laughs> shaking good average. <laughs> it's a good average. That's what I'm looking for. I just did a till day with my hand by just shaking it back and forth. Uh, but now too, as that keg's just sitting there, it's kind of separating. So yeah. somebody's roll. To shake that thing up. Well, no, so that was my that's question. what the gas does. So the gas is in there. Oh, uh, the gas is going to agitate it as it moves it the up. The gas to the top. agitates it and moves it up. So you don't have to, to shake, it. shake it. Okay. And now I saw too, though, that with doing such, not all guys strain their citrus after they squeeze it. You or have to strain it. Pour it you should, thing. right? So that, totally. that gets into some of the cons of it. So if you're making a cocktail that has a lot of fake shit in it, it probably sets a lot better um, than the ones that we make because we don't add a lot of fake stuff into it. And the smoke show is a margarita. It has lime juice. Uh, the Georgia peaches has lemonade, so it has lemon juice in it. Those are obviously acidic. Citrus flavors. Citrus flavors that go in there. And that, I mean, if you ever accidentally tasted a lemonade that's sat in your fridge for a couple of weeks, it's now a carbonated beverage. Well, that, but I mean, even right? if you let it sit for a couple of days, the flavors tend the to blend out. The flavors are, no, but if, you, if it's, it, can, it will carbonate itself and it will get a very not good taste. I've right? never let that happen, but. I'm kind of curious. You have a couple kids, one will sit around for a little while, and you'll <laughs> accidentally think you're drinking a brand new lemonade, but it's one they left out for a while. But in, anyway, in the point is you lose the, the real flavor of the lemon and the lime. So when you go to the tap, that is one of the cons, is you have to be sure that what you're batching out you can sell in a day or two. Okay, so your shelf life on one of these kegs is just two days? No, it's it's definitely longer, and, and that can vary about how concerned you are with the freshness and the flavor of it, but... We obviously like to be as fresh as possible, so I wouldn't. We wouldn't want um, either of them to be sitting for more than more than two days. So you got to be sure you can do that. Can you untap it, pop it open? Yeah. Add to it? You can, but I, why? You wouldn't you want to add to it. Maybe well, taste if the it, acidity doing, is changing in the lime and the lemon, you have to compensate with higher sugars. N- no, you. Have but to then sell you, it. you would change the entire like formula. Yeah. Then you'd have to add more lime juice, and you have to add more alcohol, and you have to add more water to dilute it down. Like you can't just add one without. And the others and totally affecting your the, ratios. The good right? part is what you should do is always under batch, right? Because just go through it that much quicker, make it. Yeah, fresh if batch. your keg kicks, you just start making it. You can make or, it by hand, and it takes thirty yeah, seconds. Uh, you know, yeah. a la carte again. Yeah. You know, like go back to the old way. So you always want to under underestimate what you're going to sell, so you're not sitting on the sitting on the inventory, and then just track it. So if you're selling a certain amount and you keep running out on Friday night, then you know you know you can up your batch levels a little bit. But it's not the end of the world if you do run out because your bartender knows how to make one by one. So if you if you need to make one on the on fly without batching it out, it's not that sure. big of a deal. Correct. Um, the other thing too is like if you have more of that prep because it's Friday Saturday night and you can actually go through one of those kegs in a night. Say your restaurant's big enough or yeah. you're doing enough volume, you could just throw more of that in a Cambro and somebody could go flip that thing midway through. Like, yeah. How how quickly is, is it to get it into the keg? Is it a simple process of just unscrewing and pouring it in? Pouring it into the keg is is just that super simple. What's yeah. one of those cost? What does one keg. keg cost? The the actual equipment. The refill three, piece. Yeah, three hundred yep. bucks. Okay, so you got two of those things. You got two of them. Six hundred investment to get an extra drink on every single table. Right, should make it back pretty quickly. Sooner or later, and the, uh, sooner is what we look for. That's not the only way you're making it back is the speed of the cocktail. You're also making it back on the consistency of how much liquor you're pouring into each drink. Sure. Because we all know that every bartender will tell you that their free pour is exactly measured out, but it's not to <laughs> to the ounce perfectly. At, to the quarter ounce, tenth of an ounce, whatever. I know every single one thinks that they have a count. No, mine actually is though. Yeah. Okay. I got. I have a pour test in the back. We'll do it. 
Let's do it right now. It'll be on my Monday monologue. We'll throw it on IGTV. <laughs> we'll watch Jay do a, a poor, poor test. There you go. All right. But since that's not true, <laughs> when, when we batch it out, we can say, look, there's X amount of alcohol in this. It doesn't matter who's pouring it because we know that there's X amount of alcohol in this. So our pour cost is exactly the same for every single drink. So that there is a pro because you're going to make back your money just on weight, not wasting the alcohol. I, I'm on board. As looking into this too, I definitely saw you cannot put a martini into this just because of the temperatures. Because the martini has to be served far colder than what your keg room's yeah. operating at. So it, I was going to say it actually pours really nice because it's cold, like the keg is cold the whole time, whereas your liquor is stored at room temperature. So when you're making a cocktail, you have to shake it or, or stir it or whatever to bring it down to the temperature that you want. Now that we're batching it out, the cocktail itself is kept at 30 degrees, so it is pouring nice and cold. But, yeah, Martina, you probably want to go a little colder. That's, that's your dilution in there, too. Uh, I was working on something the other day, too. It was tedious and... You know, it looked a little intense and involved, to be honest. Scripts, man. Scripts and automation. I don't know coding that crazy. I could put together some web stuff, like modify some web stuff, I should say. I know what to look for. I know how to fix some things. I can't write it from scratch. However, you know, in building out what we're doing here with the Cocktail Garnish Co., I want to build this faster. I want to build it faster. I want to build it stronger. I don't want to waste any time. And I don't want to pay some company 150 bucks a month to do my social media. That's annoying and it's costly, especially when you're starting something up. So I took the time the other day to do some further research and look up uh, a script that I could possibly run that will automate what those companies do for you for 150 bucks a month to set it on autopilot and do it for free. We're already paying for the internet. Why not use it? Uh, and one of these things that I've used before in the past, and I built an account from literally zero followers to 28,000 back in the day. The account was called Art for Sale with a four in the middle. It doesn't exist at this point. But what I did was I charged artists to operate as a classified ad system where they could sell their painting. So with that many people that are on this thing, people would come there and find artists that had paintings that you know they really wanted. I would charge the artist $1.30 to post this thing. But to grow that, I ran a script on my computer and this script would just automate every single thing that I told it to do, like a mundane task. And we've talked about this before, where when you follow somebody with your, you know, your restaurant account or you know, whatever it is, your bar account, you're essentially knocking on the door and telling them that you exist as a person or an entity and to, hey, come check me out a little bit. So all I want to do is automate this process and find the right people in the key demographic. So what I did was I exported every single person that was liking a cocktail photo, because this is what we're doing here, right? Cocktail garnish. And I exported 2,500 names. I set it up so that way it would add in HTTP dash slash slash Instagram.com slash and then that person's name under every single person. And then the next step here is to automate it so that way it says, go to that person's profile, click follow, back out again, go to the next person's profile, click follow, back out again, wait XX seconds. That way, you know, you don't raise any flags on Instagram and it doesn't do it all within 50 seconds, you know, liking 300 people's shit. So in doing this task, it's something that's super easy to do if you look it up enough. And if you want to do research on that, 
you could go into Google and you could type in, you know, I macro script for following on Instagram. It's a super easy way to get something going. Yeah, you'll have to polish up reading some knowledge. You know, I'm not just handing you the keys of the castle here, uh, but it's an easy way to grow things. And, you know, just sure enough, we've been talking about growing the Instagram here. It's almost at 10K now, and you're using similar techniques by hand. Like, let's automate this fucking thing and get through the roof. I'm for it. Right? And we live in such a social world where it matters. And I know Nooms hates Instagram and whatnot, but it doesn't matter because the rest of the world is on it. And if we want to get those sales, we got to target those people. I don't hate Instagram. I yeah, hate why do you say Nooms hates Instagram? Oh, sorry. Hates Facebook. I hate Facebook. Cool. You know, whatever. It is. <laughs> Jay, enough of that. Stick to the script, man. We got my boy Brian Lawrence here. He's uh, torn out over at Goosefeather to tell us about his story and his journey as a cook coming up through the kitchens over the years. Brian, welcome. Good afternoon, guys. How you doing? Did you say tornado? Tornot. Tornot. What is a tornot? Tornot is a position in the kitchen. It's the roundsman. You're the guy who can work any station. You're capable of basically doing it all. Kind of like a tornado, just with a lot more finesse. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, the actual word is tornot in French. Got it. Fancy French words. Fancy French <laughs> words for fancy finesse things. Correct. But uh, Brian, why don't you tell us how you got started in the kitchen? What made you decide to go this route in life? Well, for me, all started at home. You yeah. Know, mom's cooking, loving to eat. You know, loving the smells, the sounds of the kitchen. Mm. And uh, you know, it was around maybe 13 years old. You know, my mother was you know out of work at the time, so. Needed to help out a little bit. Got a job at this restaurant that was around the corner from the house. Started washing dishes. And then from there, it was just, that was it. That's all I could really see myself being able to do. You know, fell in love with the kitchen. Fell in love with that environment. The so it was team. just back of house all the way, though? No, I did, uh, I did stumble into the front of the house over, over the years. Worked uh, as a busboy. Worked as a server a little bit. But mostly in the kitchen. You know, started off washing dishes, prepping, up into a cook management you know so you went to the culinary school along the way what school did you go to and why did you choose that school I went to ICC mm. uh, the International that? Culinary Center down in Manhattan Soho it's a beautiful school I, I was touring CIA at the time but for me what I was looking for you know I was just getting out of high school I was trying to get out of that whole academic world that whole academic <coughs> mentality and just wanted to get to cooking you know mm. I was telling everybody I don't you're going to college, where are you going? Everyone's planning on where they're going to go after high school. And I'm like, dude, I just want to cook. And I was kind of not wanted to go to culinary school, but my mother really pushed me. I just wanted to work in the restaurants. But she pushed me in the right direction. CIA was very, you know, academic. They have a more proper, formal. Yeah, you have to take classes that aren't all related to just cooking stuff. You've got to do actual Correct. book work. Yeah. I mean, they also, they had an amazing campus and... You know, you get to tour into little, see the classes and stuff. And it did look like an amazing school, but just for what I was looking to do at the time, it wasn't really fitting my needs. Like, all right, so you went in, you went into school, right? Mm -hmm. You did that route. But right before you went into the school, you were cooking at home, just experimenting yourself or so you I never had, touched a pan before. I had been working as a cook for a little while, you know, started, like, like I said, 13 years old in the kitchen, washing dishes on weekends. Three, you know, three days a week, just enough to get a little bit of cash in my pocket. Uh, after that, learning how to prep. The place where I was working at is called, uh, it's actually still there. It's called Barino's Market. It's a, it's a deli in the Bronx and country club. They, uh, they, they owned a restaurant at the time. And in that restaurant was where I started washing dishes. Then I would switch into the deli. 
do some stock boy work, you know, learn how to prep stuff. They do a lot of catering. It's a very busy place. That's where I got my knife skills and learned how to deal with uh, cutting stuff up. Slow down. <laughs> what entails in knife skills? What are, what are knife skills? You know, learning how to not cut off the tip of your finger when you're cutting potatoes and uh, such and such. So like holding correct. the vegetable or yeah. whatever it how is. To, I, you know, I remember when I got my first cut and the owner at the place, he had, he had been formally trained. He went to culinary school and he teaches you what they call the monkey fist. You know, it's a technique so that the blade of the knife always runs along the, uh, the, the length of your finger rather than holding your fingertips and uh, potentially correct. cutting off the tip of your finger. Yeah, and I'm very aware of that one as, as a guy that I do cook at home. I don't order out things. Mm-hmm. And every time I see somebody chopping with their fingers out, I just look at them and I go, oh, it's what scary. the fuck are you doing? Absolutely. You're I feel like I've had piece. that exact same conversation with Justin a whole bunch of times in the kitchen before, like hundreds of times. <laughs> Why did you say you don't order out things as if it was a, a bad thing to do? Because I'm an efficient dude, so I just cook at home. He's trying uh, to like, make it sound like he eats very healthy. That's why. So, it's all fun. It's definitely not true. Though. Anybody that gets takeout <laughs> is an inefficient cook at home. That's what you're saying. I'm not suggesting that. Don't twist my words on me. Also, it's not suggesting. You just said it. Yeah, you just said <laughs> I don't get takeout things. I Listen, we cook things at home because I know where things are coming from. I go to the store and I pick up my food. I know what's going into it. I know it's going to be a short amount of time. And Joe, also, it's not going to I'm going to call Bush on all that amount. right now because I remember when you took a picture of that sandwich you made a couple weeks ago. There was a hot sauce packet from Taco Bell <laughs> on your on your counter. And you were like, yeah, I use that hot sauce on my sandwich. He knows so. where that comes from. It comes from Taco Bell. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Where my, do they get it from? My girlfriend hoards that crap. Uh-huh, There's uh-huh, a whole drawer yeah. dedicated uh-huh. to Taco Bell. Uh-huh. But it, so listen, you're cooking things. You're learning knife skills. You're learning how to cut yeah. off your hand. You're learning how to, were you butchering meats or like what? So at that place, really, it was just learning how to cut vegetables and doing mass production of, you know, lettuce, tomatoes, potatoes, you know, like things like that. Deli prep. Exactly. Prep, Slice, slicers yeah. that are circular, slicing all these things up for the most part, no? That's a good well, thing to no, learn. That was early. actually, you know, guys in the front count, you know, in the front working the counter. I was in the back in the kitchen because, like I said, they do a lot of catering shows, a lot of orders where they have, you know, a lot of potato salad or roasted potatoes and, you know, different things like that where you have to carrots and things that need to be braised with, you know, meats for entrees so just a lot of the mass production of the vegetables that had to get broken broken down before they're used for other things and you're talking about prepping huge cambros of the show yeah assume. you know cases on cases of anything the good thing about that is it teaches you how to be quick and efficient because you know you can't be wasting time cutting one potato perfectly when you got two cases behind it that mm-hmm. you got to work through Oh, sure. The, I mean, the amount of times that I walk in the back of the kitchen, I see blades just flying onto the thing. I'm, I, the cutting board, I, I just look at it and I just go, how does this guy keep on hitting the thing? He's moving so quick. I would have had a finger loss by that point. I saw a TikTok video the other day of like a little 12-year-old kid. And he was like, yeah, I see those videos. Did you see that one? Yeah. Speed. Speed. Yeah. The 12-year-old kid was probably 25 times faster than me. Got to develop that muscle memory. I'm Early. also not that fast. So. <laughs> 25 times is fair then. Front of house life, 41. <laughs> but learning, like learning those basic skills, like any kid coming into a new job, you take your lumps at first a little bit. Maybe you get yelled at by the guy that's supervising on the floor because you, you cut something incorrectly. <laughs> I mean, we were talking to Nikki Scoops in the last episode about uh, what was it, the vanilla bean dude messed up a full-on vanilla yeah. bean batch. Well, of I, ice I thought you were going to talk about the uh, the bet that he got forced into for being late to work, where he had to crawl his way home. No, well, that's yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. a different bet. But, but like, but yeah, no, no, I'm with you. But uh, you I know, said he put two bottles of vanilla extract. Yeah, into you know the sixty-four ounce vanilla. bottles of vanilla extract, about yeah. sixty dollars a piece. Dude, put two bottles of that into one batch of cookies. <laughs> God. So you take your. You lumps, didn't get fired for it though. You learn some lessons. 
And oh, because he, remember he called him after that. He called him in the middle of the night. And he was like, "Dude, guys, it's weird. fucking two episodes <laughs> back. <laughs> it's there. It's on document." Uh, but you're you're sitting here and you're saying, "I'm ready for the next level." And then you go into school. You say, how do I pursue this career a little bit further? Well, honestly, I thought I was at a point where I didn't need to go to school. You know, when, uh, when I graduated from high school, I had already worked as a cook for a little while at this place in uh, Hawthorne. It's called Stone Manor. And, you know, that was another place where big volume. You know, there was a, it's a steakhouse. They have a big catering hall and a big a la carte dining room. A lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. You so know, what stations did you work while you were there? So I worked the hotline. I would switch between pasta, saute, you know, fry. We were just all up and down the line. Learned a little bit of grill at that time, but I was 16, you know. So I was really, it was early for me in my cooking experience and early for me in life. <laughs> so, you know, I was a little limited into where I was able to dip into. But I, at that point, I knew for a fact there was nothing else I really wanted to do. But I went to school really to, you know, in school you learn the, the why. In, in, in the kitchen, in the restaurant industry, when you're cooking, when you're making dishes, you learn. You know, anyone can pull up a YouTube video and this is how you do this. This is how you make chicken parmesan. You know, whatever it is that you're going to, whatever you're looking up. But if you know why you put the flour on before the egg, or if you know why the oil has to be at this temperature before you fry the chicken, then you can be creative and you can really do whatever you want. You're a chemist. Uh, you'd probably be good at cooking meth too, because you want to know the whys. You know, you know what I mean. I mean like, if, they, if there's a recipe for the meth, we'd probably be fine. It, exactly. My point is, I do think that often people with the ideas of the whys and how things are put together, and they want to know further questions that mm -hmm. might be obnoxious to Justin or Nooms when I ask them. Typically, it's me trying to figure something out further, and then I'll never have to ask that question again. And I could build off that knowledge. And that's what you're saying that. Well, in the kitchen, knowing why to, I mean, at least to me, it's one of the biggest things that gives you the power to be able to be creative and uh, innovative. You know, change the how. Sure. And we do that in the front of the house with drinks. You know, the formula to putting a cocktail together, or at least one of the ways the formula exists, you can substitute all of those ingredients into something else. And then mm -hmm. you make a whole different drink. That way the drink lasts for winter, fall, summer, you know, it doesn't matter what the time is. Yeah. And in going into culinary schools after that, after Stone Manor. Correct, yeah. So how long were you at Stone Manor? It was little, I want to say a little over a year. Because, yeah, I graduated high school when I was 17, and I uh, yeah, went straight into culinary school right after that. So you say it's a huge place, Stone Manor. Yeah, yeah, it was like 14,000 square feet. Is it a castle? It, it, <laughs> it used to actually be, so the, the building that the, the restaurant's also, I, in. I don't want to cut you off, but it sounds... Like, I'm joking when I say, is it a castle? But in this Northeast area, there are literally <laughs> castles yes, yes. everywhere. And we'll talk about one of those castles in a little bit with you, too. So this place used to be, used to be the farmhouse of, like, an apple farm, to my, to my knowledge. I believe that's what the story was. And it's, you know, big, big house, four levels. They have a tremendous dining room with a little side, side room that can fit at least 50 people that has a long window in looking into the kitchen so you can see the entire line. So it's almost like an open kitchen, but soundproof windowing. Um, soundproof is good for when you're getting yelled at. Absolutely, yeah. When you're know, getting yelled at and steaks <laughs> are being thrown at people because they're not cooked the wrong temperature. Yeah. Not right temperature, excuse me. But also the catering hall, two-floor catering hall. I believe 150 plus people. So very, very, very big place. You know, the line can fit eight, eight plus people on it at a time. 
So that kitchen is essentially taking care of the entire place, including catering and yeah. just regular front of house yeah, meals. Yeah, so you would be, you know, you'd be in the middle of a service at eight o'clock, and it's like, all right, guys, you gotta put all the apps out for all these tables right now. Wait fifteen minutes on these tables for the entrees. We gotta put out all the entrees for the uh, plated one hundred fifty to two hundred person uh, banquet. And you know, as somebody behind the line. And I feel like every time I go into a different place, there's different requests in, in the way in which the kitchen operates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking about POSs last week. But in some POSs, you can choose what's coming first. You're coursing it out, what's coming second. And if you want to tail on the dessert in a prefix menu, maybe you could throw it on right there too. And in a lot of places, they want you to fire it in the appropriate times. That mm-hmm. way it sends to the kitchen. Now, in other places, though, maybe their line's not as big. It's a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to have all those tickets up in the window. And they tell you, fire everything at once. We'll time it out for you. Well, we can dip right into that end of the spectrum <laughs> once we get into Pulpatina because that's going to be the absolute opposite experience as what I was having at Stone Manor because this is a kitchen that you couldn't fit more than three people in at a time. Okay. Uh, it, cooking, you know. So. And, yeah, that's an interesting building, an interesting piece of time, too. But yeah, So you went but, to school, though, for a couple of years then, after Stone Manor, before we touch on how to yeah, fire so, tickets correctly. <laughs> well, actually, now, now that you mentioned that, this is just a little quick uh, nip at that with uh, tickets and POS systems. Stone Manor was actually the first and only restaurant that I got to work in where I, you know, you, know, you have four or five stations in the kitchen and you all get the same ticket, but they were good with bunching, uh, you know, teaching the servers how to group their things together on the ticket because you had 20 person tables the table at 20 and it's a steakhouse you know you're getting steaks in five different sides so you don't you don't have to read a a steak uh mashed potatoes uh spinach and then another steak you know it's this is three of these four of those five of those and then certain uh certain stations have to read off all the items that are coming from a different station it just you know blocks your view you got all this different stuff they had it so that only the things that came off of your station were printed out of your your ticket machine when you get that so things like that, working at that scale, you're doing hundreds of people. Plus, you know, on a Christmas Eve, you got seven to 12 parties a day. You know, you're going, you're doing at least a thousand people a day. And it's so even though you're getting the printouts directly into your printer for how much of whatever item you need, you still have your little ticket window where you're putting things in? Correct. Absolutely. It's, it's important to know, like, how, um, at least on my bunching thing, it's not just... It's pretty complicated because you get one station, let's say, that's doing sides or something like that. You have another station that's doing steaks. Obviously, you can whip up a side of mashed potatoes a lot faster than you can cook a medium well steak. So there's some amount of coordination that has to go through when you have one station that's just firing sides all day and knowing when to put that side up based on when everything I, else comes I out. didn't really appreciate it until I got to be in a position or the perspective of a manager. And it makes your job as an expediter way easier when you know that Let's say all, the guy who's only doing the sides, he doesn't need to see all of the salads because that's just getting in his way when he's trying to see where his sides are and how many of what he has, especially when you have so many tickets. So if I want to make sure that all of my soldiers on the line can produce and perform at the most efficient level that is possible, that, you know, that's probably the best way to do. And it makes your life way easier because then you don't have to be like, all right, table six, let's go. After, wait, where's the fucking onion rings? You know, or you're not waiting on fries. For the record, <laughs> I <laughs> for the record, <laughs> I don't want anybody to think that I was just 
saying that you know George Jefferson pressed the button and the food comes out <laughs> in a couple of seconds. No, what I was leading towards though was a lot of times in the front, chefs like, yo, I need 14 mid-rare steaks all day. Mm-hmm. Are you still getting that even though you have all that oh, information no, there as a double check? That's or? something that's the, the most fun thing when you're that experienced, when you're on fire in a sense and you're in the middle of service and you don't need to look at the tickets because you just call out and can I get it all day? And you get that number and you just, you can remember it in your head and you kind of, you get into a groove, you know? I mean, I don't know about everybody else. But that just least. comes with practice. And I'm guessing when you were at Masa, which we'll get back to when we get to that point in your story, yeah. they probably didn't have tickets or printers at every station, right? There was a No, no, no. You just had, you had the, the tickets were on the expo side and you yep. didn't get to really see any of the things. So you it had to know what you had. It was all done verbally. Yeah. yeah. And you it was kind of embarrassing to ask back picks. for something. Yeah. <laughs> I've been there before. Deep on yeah. a Saturday what? night and you're just like, oh, yeah. I've got like six You don't want to be the guy to ask for an all day? Absolutely not. When yeah. you were a kid and you did something wrong and your buddy came over to you and he gave one across the back of your neck, pulled you hard, little Indian <laughs> burn, you ever get one of those as kids, guys? Like, I feel like that's what you get, though. No, you never? No, it's, it's a lot worse than that. <laughs> okay. A chef will come up behind you and, like, maybe whisper in your ear, I don't know what's going on with you tonight, but you better get your shit together. And then you get another message like that and you get kicked off the line. So you don't want that. Together. All right. And <laughs> oh man, and I've seen guys get kicked off the line. <laughs> the worst, and it's you know like what? That walk from your spot yeah. to like mm-hmm. off. Th- and then and then you gotta wonder like do I just go home or do I just sit down here like an asshole like mm. not doing my job? It's painful. One thing that's I've a little seen bit Mike worse. Do it. I've seen Mike. I'm sorry to cut no, you go off, ahead. but I've seen Mike do it middle of a busy night, expo whatever, and you just see Mike stopping. Off, off, off. <laughs> Doesn't happen a lot. It, yeah, I, but, I don't remember the last time it happened, but you just hear off, off, off like that, and then someone's got to step to expo, and usually Mike has to go where that guy was, and then whoever got. Oft was just standing there watching the rest of the time, like, in time out. I got one quick story. We were um, eating out at Manhattan last year for my mom's birthday. And um, in Manhattan, we had a, the kitchen was in the middle of the dining room, so you could see the whole thing while it was happening. We were sitting a little ways away from the kitchen. But every once in a while, I'd look up, and I could see Seth Jason, who was the executive chef, the big guy who was normally not in the kitchen, not on the line ever during service. He was standing right behind one of the um, entremet cooks, one of the guys who was cooking the sides for the meat station. I was whispering to everybody at the table, like, yo, that dude's getting in trouble because, like, Jason's standing right behind him. Sure enough, five minutes later, the dude was gone from the line, and Jason was cooking the sides. And I was like, some, like, crazy shit must have just happened for Jason to be on the line actually working. <laughs> sure enough, yeah. The, I mean, I guess that it's embarrassing. When you get kicked off the line, though, you go home, or you're, are you forced to just stand there and watch everything happen without it, you doing it? Depends it depends on how it bad it depends on if you still want the job, too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, okay. I'd say it depends on how bad it was because it depends on who you're working with. You know, some 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 chefs might get upset if you leave. Like I wanted you to fucking stand there in embarrassment to feel yeah. the burn, and then you know, then you get back to it. But what I was gonna get at real quick was one thing that I feel even worse than that is when you you get kicked off the line, but when someone cooks you off the line. You know, <laughs> new cooks they get this experience where you know you're you're either working a station that you don't have experience in. You you lied to get the job, but you said yeah I could do this, and you start picking it up, and you notice you don't really have it, and someone else comes along and they see it and they won't tell you to leave. They'll come onto your station and they'll start cooking your food doing your without saying you. anything and they'll teach you how to do it. So then that's your, you're in the position of like, shit, do I just stand here, learn and try, or do I just go home and give up? I think in age, you become a little bit better at managing those situations mm-hmm. and figuring out what to do and reaching out to the person that's going to be there to help you in getting out of whatever weed you're in or whatever trouble that you're about to be in. And I think it says a lot for a person when they can acknowledge that they're in over their head in something and they have to reach out for a little bit of help. Knowing when to ask for help. 
Yeah. A lot of times you don't get a chance to acknowledge it though. Someone else will <laughs> recognize it and acknowledge it for you. Yeah, especially if it's like a busy Friday or Saturday yeah, before night. Before you even realize. There's no and, time for you to acknowledge and it. And you're, you're at the mercy of whoever it is, whether they liked you or not. Because yeah. if they liked you, they'll coach you a little bit and try to make it not obvious. Mm-hmm. But if they didn't like you, they'll kind of shame you. you for it. And it'll, it'll be hurt. obvious to everybody. When I was trading at a prop firm, uh, this is where you have a little bit of money and they give you a lot more money to trade with. Mm-hmm. And it was my day one and I'm sitting there in front of the computer and the market just opened. And me being uh, youthful and thinking I'm getting a Ferrari today, I was like, got this. So all of a sudden I put a bet in on one of the stocks and it goes the complete opposite direction <laughs> against mm-hmm. me. Uh, for those that don't get it, I'm losing money every single second the stock goes against me. How much money did you me. lose? I was down like, 550 bucks pretty much instantly which it, you know it's all relative to people yeah but that's still a lot of money. but i instantly said derek i made a mistake i'm short this amount of stock look at the chart and should i tap out right here or should i double down or hold on and he was like it's all right it's not that crazy you, you know you got funds in the account you're not bleeding the thing out but like this is what you need to do to guys, I, I would think. And if you have advice to young kids that are getting in over their heads and they get to that spot, how do you want them to handle it? How do you want them to walk up to you and be like, hey, I have a problem now. Is it ahead of time or is it when it's far too late? Well, one of the biggest things is being able to break that either, whether it's pride or embarrassment, to ask for help. You know, because right now where I'm working, we have a couple of externs from the culinary school that I went to and knowing when to ask for help is the biggest thing because then you'll be able to see who is and isn't willing to actually help you you know but that's that's where you have to roll the dice because the worst thing to be is the guy in the kitchen who nobody wants to help because <laughs> that's then, then that's a situation where you just go home I, I would hope those guys carry but themselves no, a little I, bit better yeah I'm, I'm joking about that but you know you, you got to you have to look like you want to help. You have to look like you want to learn. You know, you got to ask questions and you got to be interested. You know, certain guys, you can't, people want to help people that want to help themselves. So you can't be the guy who just stands there and it's like, don't, don't ask me to do your job for you. Ask me to teach you how to do your job better. How long were you in school for, in culinary school? So it was a two-year course. So it's, it accelerates. Yeah. It feels, I, I'm not getting down, and actually I'm was, not downing it. Was it. Weird. It's a trade. It was, it was weird because this is, they, they had a two-year version, they had a nine-month version, which it was different on, you know, how many days of, of the week you would go to school because a lot of, actually, most of the people who were going, they worked jobs at the same time. So you could go five days a week or three days a week, and that would depend on how, you know, how long the, the program was going to take. But I had to switch from the nine-month to the two-year, and it, it was a little over a year in total for me because I split halfway through. I was, you know, the jobs that I was working, scheduling wasn't working out, and I had to switch up what, what I had to do. We were speaking to Dan on the last episode about culinary school, and he was like, it just wasn't for me. I couldn't mm. sit there and do anything homework-wise, wasn't happening, wasn't by the books, mm. right? Yeah. And at that point, do you feel similar well, to that What do you mean by that? Like uh, homework and by the books? I don't know. I what mean, kind there of was, there's happens? significantly less homework in culinary school. Than no, because for me, I'm the complete opposite. That was the reason why I loved culinary school. I hated homework. That's what, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean. Oh, that's what he said. That's oh, what that, that's what he yeah, was yeah, saying. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody liked the home. 
And Nikki who said he didn't even show up to half the thing, but would yeah. Like, I mean, so practicals. Well, you see that that's the a lot less thing. actual gotta, book work. There's a lot more like practical work of like being in class and like being shown techniques than proving that you know how to replicate those techniques. There's, I think I did like maybe one book report the entire time I was in culinary school. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, for for us, it was mostly practicals. The the first couple weeks or months in class, you know, you're learning technical terms, so that's where it's really, you know, on on paper. But other than that, it's really I want to see it's physical action, seeing if you can do the job. But one of the things that you had said was one of the guys not going to class at all. I mean, that's one of the biggest lessons in the restaurant industry at all. You know, eighty percent of the job is showing up. You know, because you, I mean, I, I don't know about your experiences, but there's been places where I got to work at different station and learn things because somebody didn't show up. And now I get paid more because I'm working somebody else's job because yeah. they decided not to come to work. So showing up really being makes there is a difference. part of the job, yeah. you know, being there, you can, you, you have and in, in anything in life, just showing up and just having the action of being there gives you all the opportunity to learn, yeah. progress in any sense. That's, that's literally how I got my start behind the bar. Uh, almost 20 years ago now. But the guy, I was a bar back. They made me make all the drinks for the whole restaurant all the time. <laughs> One of the guys didn't show up on Friday night. There was, was no bartender, just me yep. standing there. And the boss comes over. I need someone to go to the bar. I said, don't worry about it. I got it. You don't <laughs> know how to make drinks. You fill ice all the time. It's like, who do you think is making all the drinks for the last three <laughs> months? These guys haven't made a drink in months yeah, for the, for the floor. Fun. So I was on by myself Friday night. Got my ass kicked, but did it. And then I got his spot because... He show up. Yeah. That's how it works. I got his bar shifts, and the rest is history. So I guess either thank you or not. I don't know. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so show up, especially when you don't want to. Yeah. When you came out of culinary school, you were still working in a job while you were doing this, though, no? So throughout culinary school, I was working part-time at this place in the city called Cata. It was a Spanish tapas bar, and, and they had a bunch of gin, too. It was a very, very cool place. Um, but right after, right after culinary school, I went straight into working at Pulpatina. Okay. And which location for, let's paint Pulpatina's picture for everybody that's out there. Uh, there's a couple locations now, right? There's two. So they, there was two locations They're They're at just East Chester now, no longer in the Larchmont location. Wow. Okay. And East Chester location, that's the flagship. That's the place where I was working at. And it's, it's a very nice place. It's small. It's cozy. It's on the corner of corner of the street first floor of a residential building and you know you, you got this nice brick and wood all over the place it's actually kind yeah. of on a hill as well isn't it yeah yeah a little little bit of a hill and they have two sections to the restaurant uh from I, I wasn't there when they had opened but from what i remember they said there was just a small side where the pizza oven so it's you know pizza oven with a wraparound bar a couple seats there they had started with just that side then they were able to purchase the other side or you know Get, get into the other side of the restaurant where they have the main dining room and another big bar area. And the whole restaurant seats around 40, maybe a little over 40 people. It's intimate. Yeah, so it's very, very nice. It's cozy. Um, that, that was the place that I was saying the kitchen, you know, was small, but it was one of those things where, like, I, I appreciated having a small kitchen because it was like I didn't have to run around to get everything. It was able, you were able to design it and put things together. And, you know, over the years, the way they, they already had things set and being able to tweak things for yourself set up your station, set up your kitchen in a way where you don't have to move. You know, you could just turn around in a circle everywhere I have everything I need. Which is what everything should be. I mean, exactly. Same with the bars. You go into a poorly designed bar and you have to run 40 feet back and forth every single time. Yeah. And that takes up a lot of time. Sometimes we had having that too much space is bad. 
Yeah, uh, correct. And we had that conversation with Rocco about making everything as smooth as possible to the point where you don't have to move at all. As few and steps as possible. Pulpatina, too. When Pulpatina came out, this was this awesome time in history where restaurants were doing new different things and they were using different textures and they were looking a little bit more industrial than they were previously. Yeah. And uh, Pulpatina was known for these meatballs. You would go in there and get, you'd get the three different meatballs on the thing yep. and everyone's it, brains would explode right there. It was a turkey meatball, I think. It was a, so, so originally they, they had the uh, beef, chicken, and pork. Now the, uh, the pork had been replaced with a falafel. And I mean, meatballs are awesome. That, you know, and touching on what you were saying when restaurants started getting into that, doing a little bit cra- crazier, creative things. Micah Bruzzi, the, the chef owner mm-hmm. of Pulpatina, he did. Working with him was one of the biggest attractions for me going into working in that restaurant because young, young cook, you know, looking to, aspiring to be a chef, looking to learn, looking to grow, wanting to have someone that you can have as a mentor and you could work with. And he's a great guy and he's very knowledgeable with food and very creative. He's a big and personality I, too. Absolutely. So it was a great person to learn with and kind of get under his wing and grow a lot. So... So when you got to Pulpatina, what position were you working? Were you just a line cook, or yeah, I, I started off as a line cook, and that you know, that didn't last very long. <laughs> you know, step step up and wound up lucky enough to get offered a sous chef position and grow into becoming the chef de cuisine there, and kept that until I had left to move on and learn other things. In the aspect of moving up in Pulpatina from starting on the line. What was the timetable in between being on the line to then, uh, I guess, moving up the rank a little bit to handle a little bit more responsibility? Yeah, so I was there and I was very confident, very aggressive. I wanted to pick up as much as I could. And they had a, they had a chef that was eating there at the time. And uh, wait, 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 wait. I forgot. We talked to Jorge so long ago. What was chef de cuisine does... Chef de Cuisine is usually the chef in charge of the menu working right underneath the executive chef. So he's the guy running the day-to-day, executing the chef's visions when in the building directly. Heard. Yeah, correct. So at the time, the, the chef de cuisine there, Jimmy, he, he had been training me, and I told him, you know, I wanted to learn, I, I wanted to learn how to do orders, do managerial things, and it must have less than a year, let's say six to nine months, whatever the situation was, he had decided to move on with his career and go somewhere else. And Mike had come back into the restaurant and grabbed onto the reins and wanted to be there, be involved on a day-to-day basis. And I saw him stretching out, going back and forth between two locations. You know, it's not, you can only be one person. You can't be in two places at once. And it's, it's a lot of work. So I expressed to him, you know that I came here to learn. And I wanted to do more. I wanted to become something more than just a cook. And from there, he took me under his wing and he taught me little by little. And the more I learned, the more responsibility I was able to take on. And from there, grew into the position. And so was it two, two years that I was there before I had, for, I had left the first time? Right, I, I know it's not a big deal, but break entering into that conversation because there's so many young guys that want to do more <laughs> and they're scared to have those conversations. It's a scary conversation to have when you're a young cook. Because you're expressing you know, your feelings. You're like, hey, I want to do yeah. more. Can I do more? And a lot of guys are scared to even take the step to have that conversation. The biggest thing was I was lucky enough that we had a good relationship and I consider him a friend to this day. You know, He's a, he's a, he's a very easy person to speak to and we were... We were close and I was able to, you know, physically close because we were working right next to each other in the kitchen. And, you know, when you uh, when you kind of corner somebody in the walk-in box, it's hard for him to not answer <laughs> your question. 
This so. is true. So the, the takeaway is like trap them in a corner. Exactly. Yeah. Just do that. Be aggressive. Look at them in the eyes and don't blank until they answer your question. I think learn aggressively <laughs> is also good information too because like it's easy to find yourself in a situation where you can ask for more responsibility when you're the type of the guy or the person in the kitchen who is already learning everything they can see, you know? Mm -hmm. So like if there's multiple stations, you learn all those stations. Once you have all that mastered, then you feel like you're the one who can say, I'm ready for more, I can do more, can I have this extra yeah. responsibility? But I mean, if you're, you know, the relative new guy who doesn't know everything about your environment yet, if you ask for more responsibility, chances are you can say, well, master this, master that, and then get back to me. You know? yeah. I mean, another big thing was he, he, was, he was in a position where he had a lot on his plate. And I guess I understand, I mean, at the time I, I, I didn't, but looking back now, I can understand being in his perspective or his position looking back and it's like, look at this young guy, he's working hard, he wants to learn and him wanting to learn takes a little bit off of my plate. And that's one of the biggest things as, you know, as a chef or a manager managing a kitchen and you have your team, you know, people wanting to learn helps you not have so many responsibilities and it makes it easier for you to delegate and you'll be able to run your team and not run around like a chicken without a head. And then you get to feel free to be more creative and work on the stuff that exactly. you want to work on. Yeah. Creates growth. So um, how much time did you spend at Pulpatina? So Pulpatina, I was there for two years at first, and then I had left. That's when I had went to uh, Village Social. Stayed with Village Social for a little over a year and then went into Masa. Then from Masa back into Pulpatina. So Village Social was decently close in region area yeah. to where so, Pulpatina was. Yeah. And when you went into Village Social, what were you doing here? What was your role? So I had joined on to the Village Social group to be the uh, sous chef of the Rye location when they had uh, first opened up. Yeah, I was working with uh, Chef Alex. He's, he was the uh, executive chef at the time. And that was a very, very fun experience. You know, it was a, it was a bigger location. And working with a group that, you know, they, they, the Village Social Group has more than five restaurants under the umbrella. You know, they, it's, it, it's a fairly large operation coming from someone who only had worked at an individually owned restaurant and then a place that had just two locations. You know, you're working with a lot more managers, owners, chefs, and the way Mogan likes to run his kitchens, you know, Mogan Anthony, you know, directs all the kitchens and all of the Village Social Group. He likes to have chefs in all his kitchens. You know, he likes to have people that he knows can manage and run things on a daily basis the right way. So you have a lot of, a lot of people to work with that aren't, that, that are on a managerial level, you know? So a lot of people learn from. And what type of uh, cuisine was Village Social? So it's that kind of gastro pub feel. You know, Mogan has a very, very Asian fueled style of cooking. You know, he go, I know he, likes, he goes to China, you know, at least once a year, and he comes back with all these ideas. You know, we would sit down, uh, the, the chefs, uh, we would sit down and talk about the ideas that he would want to get from his inspiration from the street food out there. You know, so a lot of it is him replicating flavors that he appreciates and that he likes, you know, his culture. But also, there is pizza and pasta. So, a lot, a lot of things going on. When you're working underneath somewhere that has... Uh I don't want to say such a hierarchy, but a group, right? Correct. Where there's somebody at the top of the chain mm -hmm. delivering all the messages down to the various different places that are be below that group, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, as far as, you know, an individual restaurant unit. The chef then in that individual unit would be carrying out the rest of that plan 
as per told by Chef Mo, who's at the very, very top of the chain, right? Correct, because, you know, being someone like, like Chef Mogan who has to pass around throughout all the locations, he can't be anywhere or can't be everywhere at one time. And, he, you know, there's a lot of uh, emails, you know, mm-hmm. email chains with everyone to make sure we're all on the same page and we're all getting the word. So, you know, from the moment you go to sleep to the moment you wake up, you got to check your phone, make sure you're on the same page for whatever's going on, whatever the memo is for the day, whether it's, you know, recipe adjustments or staffing or whatever, whatever the case may be. I think that's important. You know, anytime we build some idea out, we try to figure out how to streamline the process and make it extremely the same every single time you do it. That way you can multiply and replicate when the time comes down to it. That's like and your uh, scripts that you're talking about, right? Yeah, you wanted <laughs> You could apply something to everything as long as you have the mechanics down for them, I think. And... It, you know, I think it's almost easier in some sense, in, in a sense, when you have multiple fronts and somebody's sitting at the top to deliver the message down. Sure, you're going to have problems within every single restaurant that pop up that you have to put fires out on, same as any restaurant. Mm-hmm. But imagine having four places where you can replicate that menu across the border. And just, I mean, you've got two places. I mean, <clears throat> well, I don't have two places right now. <laughs> Essentially. Just, just the one, but <laughs> soon, soon enough, we'll be back, back in the flagship. Thanks for touching on that. Um, no, but I think like that the challenging part of that is through the emails and all that stuff. When we did have two locations open, it was I found extremely challenging getting people to understand what I was saying on the fly and mm. being able for them to react fast enough. So, like I'm in Rochelle and I let's say it's a cocktail, right? But make a slight adjustment. So, you know what? I want to do this now, and I get everybody not an email but a group text or whatever. Okay, listen, we're going to do with this cocktail, we're going to switch. Uh, like, for instance, the smoke shot, when it first came out, we had an ounce of mezcal instead of a half ounce of mezcal. It was too smoky. It was coming back too much. Mm-hmm. You know, too much of that flavor was coming back from the floor. Played with it a little bit in New Rochelle, changed it down to a half an ounce. I think we went to a quarter ounce first. And it was, but anyway, we changed the recipe. Text everybody out, okay, do this right away. It's got to be this. Change everything. You know, we have all the recipes written out behind the bar. But I would get to the other restaurant maybe the next day or, or whatever, and it wasn't exactly right. Yeah. So, like, there's always that miscommunication. Always like, in, in the restaurant business. industry, that was whether, like, the toughest part. Yeah, whether you're working with, you know, drinks behind the bar, food in the kitchen, and in the industry, one of the biggest things is you got to be there, you know. And, it's, and the same thing would, would take place at least in a level of frustration where when, when we did have the two locations at Pulpatina between uh, New Rochelle and Larchmont and whether Mike was making tweaks to a recipe or he had something that he needed to explain to whoever was running the kitchen over there about a special that he wanted to put out, you know, just over the phone wouldn't, wouldn't do it. You know, you really have to, when you're working with flavors and increments and ingredients, it's like you really have to be there because there, there is a level of intuition behind it and instinct. And especially when you, you're the one who's delivering the idea, you know, this is my idea. This is the way I want it to be done. You know, if you're not the one who physically oversees it, at least the first time, you can't really guarantee the replication to be perfect. But especially with, with dishes. I mean, I'm talking about a half ounce to an ounce. It's pretty easy to, to get that message across. <laughs> like, please adjust your one ounce to a half ounce, please. Yeah. The, the miscommunication is it doesn't get changed in the book. Right. And then whoever works the next day doesn't get the memo that we switched it. Right? So it goes back. That's, that's what yeah. it is. I can imagine a, in a recipe for a dish or whatever, 
a lot, well, a lot imagine more the same sense about not not putting it in the book you know right, just right. just texting the guy and saying this is what it is he might know but if he doesn't work the next exactly. day and then, then put it in the book one so, person knows and nobody yeah. else in the kitchen knows and so, one person's yeah. doing it you're not than there to else. be there to manage your team it's you know that's that i mean that's my biggest thing with having so many different locations especially if you want to have the same thing be put out the same experience you know, it's kind of it's kind of hard to have that you know and i think that's where they that's one of the things i liked very much about the village social group was not trying to replicate the same trick twice you know having different locations be their own personalities and have their own theme and and i feel like that it, it helps individualize it and i, th I think it's a, it's a successful a successful idea it's interesting too though because there's so many restaurant groups that are very individualized where every single place is a completely different concept completely mm -hmm. different brand but yet they still all operate under the same umbrella mm -hmm. and you know, to me, that's a little bit more creative freedom and be able to differentiate. And we talk about too big, too fast. Like we were just talking about Fortina, for instance, where there was like six units built within like a same three year period of time. And it's you're just pulling everybody that's from one area of town to the other area of town. And at some point, it's going to evaporate as far as the people that are showing up and coming out to actually frequent your establishment. So, yeah, if you're a restaurant group and you've, you know, take... Take two places that are right next to each other that have completely different concepts. You're kind of getting two different people coming out to those concepts. You're mm -hmm. not necessarily feeding off of the people next door and butchering yourself or cannibalizing yourself, if you will. Uh, and instead, you're giving somebody a different type of food to go out to on a different night where now they're still coming to you again mm -hmm. in a different way. And I don't think it works the same as bars. You know, bars that are owned by the same person right next door to each other. Yeah, all right. Are you just causing some bar hopping to happen? Or are you inciting people to move to another bar a little bit faster and not really getting the full value of drinks that you would have purchased in your own bar? You know, it's, a restaurant's a little bit different. It's completely different as opposed to a bar where it's just like, here's chicks, here's drinks, or here's guys, <laughs> and they're all the same. There's a light show on a Friday, Saturday night. You no, know? you're definitely right. So in leaving, in leaving Hudson... Uh, and going into Masa, which... No, no, no. So I was... Uh, so, so here's what it was. I was... Popatina Village Social. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Village, Village Social. Social and uh, into Masa. And that was, you know what, it, it, in, my, in my personality, it was, you know, look at yourself. And, you know what? Let's flip the, uh, flip the switch and just go to the other side. Get, go back to being a cook. I wanted to... I, I, I'd expressed to Mogan's that I, I was in a position that I, I didn't want to be the smartest guy in the room. I didn't want to be the guy trying to just teach everyone because I was very young. I still am very well, young. Well, you need to keep learning anyway, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, but you can still learn. I, I've learned that you can still learn and run your team. You know, at the time I was looking for, I, I wasn't as confident in my own style, my own level of creativity and my own sense of, this is the way I like to cook. This is my philosophy with food. This is my style. So I was kind of looking for that. You know, working with Mogan was great and it was very appealing because he's so creative and he has such a different background culturally and food style. So I got to learn so much with ingredient technique and what I learned was I, well, I at the time wanted to develop my own style and work, I wanted to work with some Michelin star chef and learn how to make the, the nice, fancy, fine dining tweezer dishes, because I, I, I was confident and I, I know how to make things taste good, but 
why are these guys being able to charge people so much money for the food that they're making? I must be doing something wrong. So Who's I don't, hands? I must obviously not know what they know. Let me go know what they know, right? That's what I want to do. That was my mind state. So I go there and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, I knew this. Why did I come all the way over here? To, but, you know, at, at that level, it was functionality, right? I go in there to be the, be the grill cook, do just learn how to put out their dishes. You know, don't, you don't get to learn any recipes. You don't get to learn anything that's more than a three-step process or ingredient-wise. So it, it wasn't that interesting for me. It wasn't, it's like I know how to make food, you know? I wasn't learning anything. So I figured what I really needed to learn was how to be more disciplined with doing my own research, you know? Because the things that interest me is things that are from cultures and countries that I've never been to. You know, things that's like, holy shit, you're telling me that they do something so similar from, you know, I'm Italian Puerto Rican. So when you see like different styles of shumai and stuff, it's like, yo, I eat raviolis. Like you can see so many similarities and styles of food from different cultural backgrounds. And like, dude, they're just doing, how, how many different countries use rice or different styles of pasta and noodles, you know? So learning all the different things that are just so similar and how to tie those around to the flavors that I grew up with, that's the style of cooking that I really like. And that's, that's what, you know, that's what gets me excited in the morning. <laughs> Having the ability to, uh, I guess, know your ingredients, learn different techniques, and what you're saying is tie it back to the things that you grew up knowing. Yeah, at least for me, that's, that's my, and my we, style. We hear this time and time again with chefs, where they go out, they learn so much, and then they bring it back to what they know from home. Because remember what, what you asked me, with. the first question was, where did it all start, right? It all started with waking up from a nap after school and smelling mom's cooking and being starving because my feet hurt from football practice and I just want a hot meal and like that, those smells, that memory, you know, that, that turned into hearing the, ch the, the clanking of the plates and the glasses and the silverware in the restaurants and all those, you know, all those memories, you know, all those things. That's... Favorite sound, by the way. Oh, I love that it. That's a great I, sound. Close my eyes and listen to the, the the clanking of plates and silverware being tossed back and forth. During uh, quarantine, when I was first out of the <laughs> restaurant, I got the uh, the printer sound off of YouTube and I just played it for a little. That's the, print, funny. the printer sound. Make that, make that your alarm clock. Dead serious. I put True it on story. Facebook and you everything. Just yeah. put it there. I just played the printer sound. Gloria walks into the room. She's like, "What are you doing? What I is that sound?" That's exactly what I mean, I miss work. <laughs> I like. You know, I'm honestly best sound. I love the sound of like the bus. Stop clinking, yeah. you know, scraping and stuff, but yeah. you can't see it from like afar, from like far away. I can listen to that all. It's like bus stop at a distance. You just hear, you know, the plates, you know, scraping the plates, yeah, yeah. and you just hear stuff clanking around. Yeah. But like behind a wall somewhere, yeah. that's the best sound. Like of the when world. you can hear it from the kitchen at Nero, like happening at the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah. not so close. <laughs> In any guy's life, and. Uh, you know, we're looking to buffer our resumes. We're looking to add things to our resumes that will catch eyes. And why, you, why are you laughing at that, by the way? By what? The bus stops clinging? It's like, no, nothing makes me happier than tables being flipped. <laughs> uh, no, but in any, you know, young guy's life where you're looking to make a resume for yourself, mm -hmm. really say, I've been here, I've been here, I've been here. I mean, like, you know, uh, like we just said, you go into this known place to work and they're not letting you do much and it's not creative freedom and they're just saying you could do three recipe ingredient dishes and that's it. 
you're just like, am I doing this just to pad the resume? Like, yeah, I mean, Nooms, going to Danny Myers for Manhattan, like, could you be doing something out here in Westchester where yeah, you have all the sure. control well, and reins? I mean, my exact reason for going to Manhattan was what he said. It was time to learn more and be with people who knew a lot more than me and just try to pick up as much as I can from them. And that was the fun thing about being in Manhattan. And I full-on agree with you. I, I'm with you guys here. And this is why I want to take the 40-minute commute down to New York City to be with guys that are doing this career-wise that know a shit ton more than I do and I could just hope to pick up some of the things that they're putting down. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, I That's could be making more money in Westchester than I would be making going down to the city to do this stuff. Yeah. But you want to learn things, and that's important. You want to grow. My my whole thing when I was going down to, to work at Masa, I, I trailed I trailed at uh, Perry Street, Dovetail, and Masa. And I wanted to go to these Michelin star restaurants, and I wanted to see, you know, I thought that I was looking... I was looking for how to learn, but I was just looking for security and the fact that I knew how to cook already, you know? So at that point, it was, where do I actually get my inspiration from? If it's not working in these kitchens and working with all these guys, it was from the connections that I made with meeting people in the industry and learning what they do and taste and going out to restaurants and tasting food. You know, I, I've gotten more inspired and come up with more dishes from things that I tasted that it wasn't replicating that dish. It, it tasted like something that I wanted to do very differently. And... More, I got more inspiration in those experiences than anywhere that I've been working at, you know, ever working with someone else's menu or cooking someone else's food. So, When you go into trailing at a Michelin star spot and coming from out here in Westchester, a little bit different, you know, yeah. we, we don't have Michelin star spots out here, right? No, uh, no. Well, we not do, star. Sort of. We've got Gourmand. Okay. Spots, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting there. We're getting there. And Actually, yeah. no, we do. Blue Hill. What am I saying? Okay. Blue Hill's oh, yeah. So with, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, with, you know, with this, what was the biggest difference going into, I guess, well, quote unquote, the major leagues on these trails? <laughs> like, what did you see that you were just like, oh, you, shit, you we don't do that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk to them soon, too. Uh, but what was the big difference there? The big difference was the hype. The big difference okay. was <laughs> thinking that you were going to be in such a different position. I mean, you know, I, not, not, not the, I, I didn't go in there and it's like, oh yeah, I'm the big shit. I know everything. I just, oh, this isn't as difficult as I actually thought it was. Yeah. And I am actually capable of doing this and oh shit, it's actually boring after three days. So that was, that was what it was. I and mean, it was very, it was very exciting to go into these restaurants and see See the way they were like in service, you know, the, the plateware was the coolest thing. You know, you get, you get to see so many beautiful customized plates and uh, silverware and things like $70 that. $70 that's always, yeah. But at the same time, like I said before, I get to see those when I go in as a customer. So that's, that, that's where I get to get that satisfaction from at this point. Yeah, but you pay full price too as a customer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right about how's, that. How was your uh, spoon work? No one's big on the spoon work. Oh, well, the, the, the thing is uh, at, at Masa, it was... All uh, chopsticks. Uh, well, Moss is a sushi spot, so there's not uh, too much yeah. spoon work there. Yeah, so so you know, was Japanese a bit of spoon work. Though. Yeah, yeah. How is so, your centimeter by centimeter woodwork? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, the the probably most difficult thing about working at uh, Masa, the, the grill station. You're cooking over a box grill, sliced shiitake mushrooms with chopsticks. You're doing um so the uh, like the Japanese yeah, charcoal. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the yeah. Japanese charcoal the, box grill, and you have you have those little square screens. Yep. So, you know, the square screens that the holes are big enough for the sliced mushrooms to fall through. <laughs> so you have to put two and kind of diagonally crisscross them to minimize the fall through. 
So for every two orders of mushrooms that I had to cook, I cooked an extra one for every one that fell through. But imagine that, you know, chopsticks trying to, and then the tip of your chopsticks gets caught in one of the grates. Yep. So if you're tapping back and forth, sliding in a slide, slide, you kind of get it in there and it flies off and you just throw the grate off the grill and everyone look at, looks at you. <laughs> and you're also but, managing a charcoal fire for the entire five hours as of well. service. Yeah, it's not so, hot or anything. So no. You don't have to worry hot. about that. It doesn't fluctuate whatsoever. <laughs> but it was, Did you guys uh, have the little fans to blow the, blow no, the grill? No, no, they didn't. We had fans in Manhattan. We had to <laughs> fan our grill. This keeps the charcoal going. Yeah, as so you, you blow air on it and it yeah. fans up more, but it also cuts down on the length of time that the charcoal is going to blow for. So, I mean, burn for it. So you keep blowing it, then you got to light another batch of charcoal. And yeah, the chimney starter, that's going to take another five, ten minutes. And once that's ready, then you got to stop cooking everything because you got to take your grates off so you can dump in your charcoal. Hopefully, you don't have steaks cooking on the grill while that's <laughs> happening. Hopefully, the chef's not asking, Nooms, how long on that steak you got going? Only one second, chef, I got to change my charcoals. That's not an acceptable answer. So. <laughs> Nooms would be <laughs> solid on naked and afraid, keeping <laughs> the fire going in the rain. What, what happens if you forget to get your charcoal going and then you don't have that's it? That's when chef like, comes over to you and he says, I don't know what's going on, but you better get your shit together (laughs) after you decided that you know being at masa was a little bit not what's the word i'm looking for it didn't make you sweat enough it didn't you know what i wasn't i wasn't learning that that's what it was at the end of the day and you know what i i i went there because you know the the pay was good commuting down you know from the from, from westchester down to the city that's not always fun. Yeah, you know, two two hours to get back and forth because at the time the subway from Grand Central to Columbus Circle that I that I was the closest one that I was able to take was getting construction done on it or maintenance whatever the situation mm-hmm. was. It's so always construction. Done. I had to walk you know walking a mile and a half each way, so three mile walk each day and you know two hours on the train. It's you know it's what time it, did Masa close? You were rushing back to get that one fifty train? Yeah, you 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 would get out sometimes like twelve thirty one o'clock. Yep. And you run running home to catch the train. You to have be, to hustle for that. You got to be back on an eight o'clock train in the morning, and you, you know, don't want to miss that. You last just train left work at one a.m. You're so waiting till five a.m. to make the eight o'clock. Yeah. When when you're in that position, it's like, yeah, I'm making good money, but you know what? I'm not. I'm not learning. I'm not happy with the food I'm cooking anyway. So, I was uh, still in contact, like I said, uh, Michael Bruzzi from Polpatina. We stayed friends throughout you know the years, and we had been in contact. We had seen each other because we you know hang out occasionally, and he told me he had a, he had a position for me if I wanted to come back and. And essentially go there and take advantage of what I had learned and continue my creative experience at Pulpitina as a chef de cuisine. And now, so COVID hits. Where were you at that point? Ooh, so when COVID hit, I was, that's when I was in White Plains. That's when I was working at Hudson. I was consulting there for for a period of time. And just full on Hudson side. Correct. Um, The owners own two sides here. Uh, It's Hudson and it's Lily's. Lily's. Yes. And... uh, on the street, they do have, I think, the better food, in, in my opinion, for a safe build-out of a space. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't give you too much preference in any direction. It's a place you could go for a happy hour. It's a place you could go for a nice event. It's a place that you could go on Friday night, Saturday night, the weekend. It's very, like, I, I'm not going to say generic in a bad way. It's generic in a good way because it lends itself to going in there at any single time, and it works for whatever your, you know, your deal is at that point. And... So you're consulting on this menu at this point. There was already a menu there in place before yeah, you so came they, in. They had, you know, they had essentially had the same menu for a long time, you know, several years. And they, they were interested in the way they explained they wanted to revamp the, the restaurant. You know, they were at the time interested in doing some renovations to the restaurant, making it look a little brighter and new. Because Lily's, you know, Hudson, Hudson's a little dark and old school feeling, and it had you know been there for a while. Mm-hmm. And Lily's has this 
newer energy to it and they they kind of wanted to take advantage of how successful the ideas that they had with what they did with remodeling lilies before they had opened that up because that used to be porterhouse mm-hmm. and so, if anybody's been in the city somewhere around uh midtown area there it is very similar to the lilies in the city and it's, it's not the same ownership but the building textures are very similar it is just as much equal light in the place uh, honestly, you get quality tapas in Lilies. I, I like the spot. No, the food, the food is really good. So uh, the chef there is Chef Tyler. Chef Tyler is also a good friend of mine. He, he was the one who had originally reached out to me to uh, bring me on there at the time. And the idea was they really liked my food. You know, I was working at Pulpatina, and they would, they would go there and eat, and they tried the food, and they said, you know, listen, we would love to have a young chef like you come in here and help us revamp this restaurant and make, you know, m- make the food more modern and bring some life into it. And that, that, was, uh, that was the idea. My favorite pastime, poaching. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so from there, you know, things, things weren't going as planned, yada, yada. Wound up leaving there right before, uh, right before restaurants started closing down for COVID. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a couple months off in between there. We know that. Yeah, a couple months of off. That. Yep. Took a little vacation, you know, family time. Take advantage of not working six days a week and taking a one-week vacation per year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And now take this, right? So COVID's happening. Everything's kind of shut down. Everyone's in shambles. All of a sudden, places start hiring back a little bit mm-hmm. as they're figuring out, hey, people can eat outside safely. and <laughs> It's cool. Mm-hmm. So... Now you get the call or you see the post, you know, how do you no, wind up so, where you're at now? So my brother and I were looking for somewhere to go eat and uh, Goose Feather in Terrytown. It's only a 10 minute drive away from where I'm living right now in uh, White Plains. And we decided, you know what, let's check it out. I had heard a lot of good things. A uh, friend of mine in the industry had went there for his birthday. Um, he, he really enjoys the food there. So go there. They, they asked for first and last name for the reservation, so the chef de cuisine at the time, or actually, I'm sorry, the chef de cuisine there was the executive chef who I opened Village Social and Rye with, uh, Chef Alex. So he had seen my name in the book when we walked in. He had come out to say hello. I had no idea that he was working there at the time. He tells me, listen, I need, I need someone who can come in and pretty much do anybody's job. You know, I, I don't need someone full-time, but it's going to be something part-time, and you're going to be covering people's days off. And the food is amazing. The kitchen is cool. It's a, well, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but to paint the picture, it's inside of this historic monument. It's like a tremendous mansion on, uh, on this hill. It's a castle, like I was saying before. Yeah, essentially a <laughs> castle. And it, you know, big white pillars that are three stories tall that go up to the second and third floor over the restaurant. Uh, it's called the Terrytown Estate. They have another restaurant and a hotel on the grounds that the hotel the buildings connected to the the restaurant's building and there's hotel rooms right above the restaurant that the uh, they have balconies that overlook the backyard where the outdoor seating is and you can see the Hudson you can see the uh, the, the bridge it's it's beautiful very 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 beautiful scenery um, what's the cuisine of the restaurant for those who don't know so the uh, executive chef owner Dale Talde he uh, he has like a very Cantonese Chinese style food, but it's very he, modern. He's also from Top Chef, for those of you who know. Correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he was uh, he was on Top Chef. He, he he has a he has a history. He has he had restaurants. He has cookbooks. You know, he's he's been around. He his name uh, 
His name is pretty well known in the industry. But it's Cantonese with an American flair to it, essentially, or a yeah, modern American lot, you know, flair, right? Very, very nice modern plating, and but Cantonese flavors and that style. I'll, I'll say this. This space is on my radar for a multitude of reasons. And the build-out and what they did there for the seating arrangements are beautiful. The walls are beautiful. The tables are beautiful. The bar has about five seats on it or something, right? Isn't it an extremely small bar? Yeah, right now there's no seating at the bar. Well, in general. But in times. general, yeah, very small bar. And it's perfect. You look at the photos on the website of Goose Feather, and you have a quick wow to yourself oh, real fast. Oh, it's so beautiful. And the thing about the Goose Feather, too, though, is they have this little farm area where they uh, grow yeah. in, fresh ingredients. Yeah, in, in, the, in the backyard where we, where we do our outdoor seating during... Uh, when, when the weather permits, we have um, plots that they do gardening for, you know, vegetables and herbs that we would use for the dishes during the summertime. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. And yeah. so... Yeah, you need, you need time for... Because, you know, we do the, uh, the dry-aged pot stickers, the beef, the beef pot stickers. You need some time for service. You know, you go into the, go into the garden and grab some time for your station. Very badass. <laughs> it's very cool. Service. Very cool. We do, we do that here as well. <laughs> Not, not really, but I, I grew, I grew, a, I grew. You shouldn't a, say that. Just we do that here. So, you know, I grew a substantial amount of parsley this summer. It came out, oh, yeah? came out, came out pretty well. So it was good parsley. It was good parsley, right? And you did grow a substantial amount of parsley. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you said you you were gonna go somewhere, uh, go to Goose Feather for something specific, I thought it was gonna be that uh, the the photo of Bruce Lee with the uh, with that Dude, nice military a, outfit on. That's a badass, it's a badass photo. photo. <laughs> you got him, and then you got Mike Tyson. Right? I didn't see the Tyson. A black, I've been a there. black I've and white Mike Tyson photo. So it's pretty good too. Goose Feather was able able to pivot very nicely through all this because the backyard seating area here that yeah. can hold about a hundred people or so. Inside currently is like down to forty four with whatever stipulations there is. During mm -hmm. normal times, it's almost to a hundred, I think. Yeah, and a, the thing is, they yeah. wanted to bring uh, the New York environment, the city Manhattan environment, up upwards a little bit. Mm -hmm. So everyone's sitting on top of each other, as you would get in any city space that you would pre-COVID walk into. Hmm. And I love Mariana, who's over there working at the bar side. I've watched that girl grow up and learn so oh, much. Mariana, that's funny. You know, it, it's funny going from one bar where everyone's just growing, learning things, to then fat washing drinks, right? And you look at this and you champion them because you want to see people do well. Did you, you want to explain see that fat washing drinks for those of us who are uninformed and uninitiated? In that the process around. of fat washing, you're literally dragging liquor through fats to give it this taste. So a lot of times you see bacon wash happen. That way the bourbon could take all of those attributes about uh, that bacon fat and infuse it into the taste. Hmm. How do you remove the fat from the bourbon at the end? You're going far in, but you have to freeze and then take some off the top. Uh, but with such, watching people grow right in front of you, uh, Kathy, who's there as the AGM, that's like a mother to me, right? So everyone in this community and environment all know each other throughout the years, which is crazy. His name dropped. It's funny. I didn't know. I didn't know you that. Well, no. What I'm super casually like Mariana. What I'm. What I'm. He been. He was waiting for that too. He's <laughs> like, yo, y'all don't even know. I got this in my pocket. What I'm leaning towards, though, and you've essentially said this throughout the entire time that we've been talking, is you wind up meeting all of these guys all along the way. Mm -hmm. You know, your personal journey. You've met everybody in Palpatina side. You know, you know guys at Masa side now, and everyone's on their own unique journey as well. So there's only so many restaurants that people want to go into and want to work at. 
And it's the likelihood and probability of seeing everybody converge back into these spaces is very high. So I'm just saying that it's really nice to see, and this is why I keep an eye on Goose Feather too, to watch what's happening. I'm impressed with what's happening there. It's beautiful. And this is a place that you would want to take the lady, you want to go sit outside and experience. And I'm the most curious about how you dry age duck. So it's a long process. Break it down for us. And well, it, if you're allowed to. It, it, yeah, it, if you're actually doing the dry age on the duck, yeah, go into it. If not such, and this isn't something to divulge, then we'll move right on through that. <laughs> well, I'll give you a quick, uh, quick little run through. When the ducks come in, they get processed. Processed by the butchers you're talking about? Yes. yes. So, you know, take, taking the innards out, you know, we tie them up with these hooks. You know, you got to... Do you know where you're getting your ducks from? Are they coming from Long Island or State Hudson Valley? I personally do not know. Okay. Stay away from my backyard. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away from my ducks, actually. <laughs> but, um, you know, process. The, the, the most important thing that I will mention is you have to pump the air in to get the skin released from the skin. Helps you get like a crispier skin on there. So do have you know, pump the air in to get the fat released from the skin. Correct. I'm yeah. sorry. The the skin released from the meat. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so you know when you you pump in, you have that uh like a you know air tank pressurized there. You pump in the air to the to the cavity of the duck, and you see all the skin float off of the meat and get released. And then you let it hang in you know a temperature controlled with a fan room, and you let it sit there for the time. You know people do it for different times, but for the time the time that, the time that <laughs> you want to do it for. And you let it stay in there until you roast it off. And, uh, you know, there's a nice little rub on the inside of the duck to give that cavity nice flavor when it roasts off. But that's all I'll say. How big I, is I this pick room? I have to pick and choose. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> how much information am I actually going to release? How, big, right how big is that room, though, that you're dry aging these ducks in? Well, this... Imagine the size of a walk-in box. Okay. So is this like just a custom room just to have in there for this specific reason? Well, yeah. Yeah. So like that's all you've got going on in the room is just yeah we have a duck room yeah we Very got nice. yeah we got duck room in the yeah. back a couple ducks hanging over there dry aging yeah, up correct. it's kind of badass to say you have a yeah. whole duck room yeah all right so coming the in humidity control and you know fans and temperature controlled and so coming into goose feather though then and now you're dealing with a whole different cuisine that you haven't really touched previously right mm -hmm. we weren't doing uh what have we just mentioned here well now see that that's the cool thing throughout the time dabbling in you know. Mike at Pulpatina has a very high interest in Japanese food, so that was the first touch into Asian cuisine that I really got was working with him. And then from there with Mogan going to China and coming back with all these street food ideas that he would have when he would eat out there. So all those things. Then Masa back into Japanese food and getting you know this very interesting experience of seeing all these, all these different types of seafood get flown in and being able to work with Sub-Zero freezers that... It was funny. They tell me to get this. This is a good, like you know, new guy thing. Tell someone to get something out of the freezer, and you don't know that it's a sub-zero freezer. So you just grab it with your hands. You're like, oh, that that kind of burned. What was yep. that? So then into the Cantonese. For me, it's just the the whole roasted duck was one of the things that I really wanted to learn how to do because I've I mean, worked with duck in a French style. You know, the culinary school I went to was previously the French Culinary Institute before they expanded and changed their name. So have experience with French classic French style cuisine. So that whole hanging them and poaching them and having the air pumped in, have the skin released from the flesh so that you have a crispier skin. It's like, you know, all these little steps were things that were new to me and very 
exciting to learn about because now I can do it at home if you know if I ever wanted to do that much work and spend the amount of money to have build out a duck box. <laughs> yeah. So now this this environment is interesting though because the way everything's plated out as it's ready, it's getting shipped out, right? Oh, no. yes. I'm saying, no, as everything's ready, though, yeah. it's going out to the tables, like, Correct. right as it's made. So with that, though, how does that... You caught make... me at the shipped out. That's why I was like, shipped out. No, you're good. <laughs> uh, <what> a... <laughs> now, with that, though, how much harder is it to pivot into getting things delivered in a timely fashion? Are you backing up the kitchen at all in all of these ways where you might have 10 bags to go that have to go out? I mean, we've increased to-go sales Trenormously, ginormously. Which was the word? I I think trenormously would be that. that, That's a nice. uh, What is that? Tremendous and enormous. No, I'm a a big fan of meshing the words together. I I hope you don't mind if I hold on to that. uh, So, with that though, you know, takeout sales are going through the roof right now with COVID. People aren't really showing up into places. They're taking things to go. Has Mm -hmm. that stressed the kitchen out at all? So, I couldn't say. At least here, I couldn't say it stressed out the kitchen. It's kind of. We're, we're glad to be able to have that access to people, you know, to be able to, to touch that market just because, I mean, I haven't been for the, re- I've only been at the restaurant since the summertime. So I haven't been there since the opening. They've been open a year in August. So what they tell me is that they didn't really touch into the takeout at all. You know, when COVID started, they were, they were doing takeout for the hotel. So that started it and now... Now we do have, but it's not, it's, it's not anything crazy enough to say it really puts any, puts any pressure on regular a la carte service. It just, it is nice to know that, hey, at least we are able to put out some money this way and be able to, to, to reach people through that platform. Further than you would have had previously. Correct. Anyway, because, right? you know, I, I understand, number one, I understand what it's like to not want to have to leave the house and still be able to eat good food, number one. And number two, I can understand people's perspective of not feeling comfortable with exposing themselves and wanting to be in their own, you know, d- design their own safety parameters, and that's fine. I respect that. People, you know, should be able to feel comfortable to still have good food at home. I really like seeing the business model of the attachment as a restaurant into a place where you can stay over, a hotel, if you will. Yeah. And see it done well, because there's so many times where you see the hotel have a restaurant attached to it, and it's kind of just there. There's nothing uh about it. It's kind of just, it's there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that was an old, I think that was maybe an older way that restaurants were setting up in hotels. But now you're seeing this resurgence where guys are moving into hotels and they're putting out quality dishes and they're doing things that wow you a little bit. And you want to go down there and you want to experience it. I mean, how much does it help having a hotel right above the restaurant well, where sales are just coming in because it's... it's like built-in customers. Right? It's there mm-hmm. and it's quality. You max both those together or you match both of those things together and then there's nowhere else to go you're not ordering taco bell when that's downstairs no yeah, it's definitely definitely a great recipe for success especially when you know we were taking care of a lot of takeout for the rooms you know because a lot of people they you know that weren't feeling comfortable to leave you know go to go into restaurants or when they couldn't you know when there was no dine-in at all during during that period of time was a very very crucial time to have that access because it was able to keep people working Especially a restaurant like that where you don't really do takeout to begin with, you know, having a dining room shut down just to have the opportunity to be able to feed people and still have your your staff working. Brian, what like is, I think maybe the more 
defining thing that you've learned throughout of all this COVID and being in the kitchen and being back at work? You know, just just being grateful to be there, you know, being grateful to be able to be back in the kitchen, be able to be working and feeding people, you know? And I think it's funny you mentioned it earlier, uh, the ticket machines. So I had seen this post that it was a before and after, and it was the uh, the before is a chef in the kitchen yelling at the ticket machine because it's running off the hook. And then the other one is a ticket machine with no tickets running. He's just looking at it, and he's like, please, you know, don't stop, you know? So that that's the feeling, you know? That's the, that's the feeling that I have now. Used to have uh, cooks would talk and, and complain about having nightmares, the sound of the ticket machine not going off. But you know what? I don't ever want to hear that ticket machine stop. Well said. Be grateful for the business that you have coming in. Absolutely. Brian, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Guys, don't forget to uh, smash that like and subscribe button because, you know, algorithms.